Transport economists, I have to say, if they're still using these models to justify investment, are utterly moronic and should be put in jail. Welcome to the Freewheeling Podcast, the place for free-thinking ideas in transport and mobility. My name is Thomas Abelman, and each week I'll bring you fresh voices, new ideas, and unconventional thinking. So let's get started now with this week's edition of the Freewheeling Podcast. My guest today has never worked in the transport industry, but he is nevertheless an expert, by which I mean, of course, that he is a user of it. But his eyes are not those of your regular commuter. As Vice President of Ogilvy and founder of their behavioural science team, Rory Sutherland is an expert in how people think and why they make the decisions that they do. Rory has spent 33 years trying to educate us, including from the stage as a TED speaker, that people are not rational, but still we refuse to believe him. Rory, welcome to the Freewheeling Podcast. It's a huge pleasure to be here. It's a subject very, very dear to my heart. Well, I imagine, like most of us, you're not really using transport much at the moment. What do you most miss? To be honest, there's an awful lot of travel I don't miss. Uh, I think we have to be honest about this because I was a video conferencing advocate and, and flexible working advocate long before this happened. But yet even I didn't believe it would be feasible to the extent it is and for the duration it has been performed. So, I mean, you know, we, we're actually in a business that has more or less grown under lockdown conditions and actually grown significantly in ways that possibly wouldn't have been poss- possible beforehand in the sense that we've grown overseas business because suddenly, uh, you know, doing business with someone in California doesn't necessitate, you know, 4,000 or 8,000 pounds in travel and accommodation costs in order to have the meetings that agree to the activity taking place in the first place. And an awful lot of travel was what I call performative. It was like dressing for dinner in the 19th century. You had to do it because everybody else did. It was a social norm. It wasn't necessarily useful or valuable. So so my my view is we, we can look at this in a very interesting reframing way, which is that as a result of this, if we can change people's patterns of what you might call dumb or normative or performative travel and reduce the journeys that, to use that wartime, propaganda poster aren't really necessary okay as a result of that through collective voluntary action we've actually gifted the uk with an absolutely first class road and rail network because if you can remove the congestion at the peaks what you're left with is actually a fantastic transport network for those journeys that are journeys people want to make at times they want to make them So we'll dive into the detail of transport stuff shortly, but just roll back a minute. Tell me, what exactly is behavioural science for people who've never heard of it? It has various names. I mean, they are all really branches of psychology. Um, Behavioural economics, behavioural science, behavioural psychology, decision science is another field. Um, And it does have a bit of a branding crisis, to be honest. But it's essentially asking the question of how people perceive, feel, act, and think. And probably in that order, by the way, because what I think is the vital insight, the decisive insight of behavioral science, is that the reasons we give for our behavior are not really accurate, they're post-rationalized. What we tend to do is act instinctively or emotionally using powerful emotional forces like habit or social norms or social proof. We then do what instinct and perception drives us to do. 
and then we post-rationalize the reasons afterward. And so it's vital to understand these things because it fills in the gaps in places where standard economic or transport economic theory, market research, or extrapolating from past behavior, which is basically trend analysis. And those are the three big tools that business tends to use to predict human behavior. And what behavioral science does is it provides the why in addition to the what, which is much more informative in deciding what you should do and where you should experiment. But it also fills in the gaps and also provides correctives to where um, the information sources that businesses are making to predict and make assumptions around the human motivations that drive behavior uh, may be either different from those um, uh, that they believe, or in many cases, what they believe, what the research tells them, what trend analysis tells them, may be actually diametrically wrong. And I've got a very good example of this, which is asking a question, which is whether a trend is a long-term trend or whether it's simply a one-off event playing out in a system. So if we're looking at train travel, uh, what you saw for quite a, a, a protracted period Roughly coinciding with privatization, though it wasn't exclusively due to privatization, was a fairly constant increase in passengers' use of trains. Okay. Now, an awful lot of investment decisions are based on the assumption that that growth is going to continue indefinitely, or at least for the future of the decision maker's career, which is, to be honest, all he cares about or she cares about. Okay. Now, Pete Dyson, my colleague, and I have hypothesized that actually what drove that, a little bit of it was privatization, which led to investment in better rolling stock, okay? Uh, that was part of it. But what you saw between, roughly speaking, the year 2000 and the year 2020, at which point, by the way, the growth in rail use pre-pandemic was starting to tail off. Season ticket sales were starting to fall fairly precipitously. Use of the underground had fallen, in fact. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. What, what, and in fact, use of the roads is falling. There's a wonderful book by Danny Dawling, who's the professor of geography at Oxford, called The Great Slowdown. And he writes about The Great Slowdown, saying essentially, with the single exception, I think, of jet aviation, Almost all of these things, road travel, road use, train use, transportation, are in most of the world, they're in fact in decline, they're not in growth. Now, our contention, Pete Dyson's um, contention and, our, and mine, which I think is borne out by the recent data, is this. That a little bit of privatisation undoubtedly drew it because a privatised rail company might have been a bit e more eager to do some marketing okay, than a nationalised one. But here are three things which were one-off events which were highly, highly significant. I started commuting in from Seven Oaks um, in 2001. And for the first few years of my commute, everybody bought a newspaper, practically, okay? Because there was nothing else to do on the train. And I mean, stranger still, I used to miss a train. I mean, they're fairly frequent. Seven Oaks to Charing Cross, but I'd miss a train if I couldn't didn't have time to buy a newspaper because I didn't want to spend 35 minutes staring into space. Now, what suddenly changed was, first of all, probably the BlackBerry. And to a lesser extent, perhaps a technology we no longer think about now because the laptop surpassed it, but the portable DVD player. Because suddenly a train was a place where you could work, reply to emails, you could watch films, 
uh, you could, uh, you know, and then, then of course, that became the smartphone and the laptop, and then there was Wi-Fi on trains, okay? So all of those things suddenly fundamentally changed the nature of a train journey relative to a car journey, because suddenly the train journey gave you the facility to spend that time in valuable or entertaining ways, which was not possible if you traveled by car. And then, in parallel with that, the internet made it much easier to research train journeys, much easier to get real-time train journey data. So if the trains were messed up, you wouldn't even set off to the station, okay? Um, much easier to find prices, and it also brought in yield management pricing. Now, the point about this is all those things are probably one-offs. 5G might be another thing which has a small effect. You know, if we have 5G-enabled uh, rail routes, that will further add to that incentive to take the train. But the point is, what we see, I think, in the growth of rail use is probably some one-off technological breakthroughs gradually percolating through the behavioral um, network of, of, of people. Now, it's rather similar to quite a lot of economic growth after World War II was driven by women entering the workforce because wartime had normalized more women working, whether it be in factories or in other functions. Uh, in other words, married women working not in domestic service, for example. Now, the point about that is you can't expect that growth to last forever. It takes time because not all women entered the workplace simultaneously. It took about 20 years. But there isn't a third gender waiting in the wings, unless we start employing our children again and sending them out chimneys, okay? There isn't a third group of people waiting in the wings whom we can introduce to the workforce in the same way. So understanding that when we extrapolate trends, it's very important to know the why behind the trend and not merely regard the trend as proof of long-term uh, human behavioral shifts, I think is really, really important. And that comes within the field of behavioral science. And so you, you could say the last 20 years have been, you know, rail growth and public transport growth in general has been driven by the ability to have fun while traveling. And potentially we're now going into a reverse stage where it's now possible to work without traveling. And suddenly some of those factors will start to go into reverse. I mean, one of the things might have been that once you had email and a mobile phone, first of all, um, as far as most of your colleagues were concerned, you started work not when you get into the office, but you know, I mean, a lot of my colleagues don't know where I am. We have a fairly hot desking arrangement. So as far as I'm concerned, once I board the train and start firing off emails, as far as they're concerned, I'm at work. So people may be less paranoid about their train being late, for instance. Um, but also the, the time spent on the train, suddenly your commute is productive time. Now, OK, people use Seven Oaks being Seven Oaks. A lot of people used to read the Financial Times. That was sort of productive, but it wasn't really work. It wasn't replacing something you'd have to do in the office. Because people who lived next to the office didn't get into the office in Deutsche Bank and sit there just reading the Financial Times for an hour and a half. OK, um, whereas once you had a BlackBerry, you had a mobile phone, then you had a laptop or some sort of tablet device and, and possibly, you know, something to watch a film on on the journey home so you could catch up with Narcos while you were, while you were commuting back to Tunbridge Wells. OK, um, that, that's, that's a game changer. Now, my point about that is that there's an assumption um, in transport economics, which is moronic in the extreme, that all transport is a disutility. And the whole models for investment in transport make that assumption. In fact, I've got a friend who was in charge of, I, I won't reveal who he is, but he worked for Transport for London. 
And whenever he said that a certain percentage of the population enjoyed their commute, the transport economists used to get angry with him. And they'd say, you can't say that. You mustn't say that. They said, but it's good news, isn't it? And he said, no, it's not good news. All our models assume that anybody in transit is totally economically unproductive, which is why you make the case for high speed um, uh, two. OK, it's entire the time spent on train is entirely economically um, unproductive and it's a disutility in terms of uh, in hedonic terms. What does what does hedonic mean? Hedonic means just in terms of pleasure that, you know, that nobody nice. actually enjoys traveling. Now, if you look at yeah. it, you, you don't have to do a great amount of lateral thinking to go that if you notice cruise ships generally don't advertise how fast they are do they? Because the whole point is the time spent on board is part of the experience and part of the pleasure, right? You know, nobody's produced a, a hydrofoil cruise ship, have they? Right? And so it's, this is a transport economists, I have to say, if they're still using these models to justify investment, are utterly moronic and should be put in jail. You know the phrase of whatever his name is, George Box, all models, uh, all models are wrong, but some of them are useful. Okay, true. A refinement on that is all models are wrong, but some of them are dangerous, which is, I think, Emmanuel Derman, who's a complexity scientist in the States. And my view is that all models become dangerous with overuse. I remember being involved in a, a smart card business case that was going into government. And the only way we could make that case was to talk about the fact that people would get through the gates faster. And if you <laughs> aggregate all that up into journey time savings, uh, it, it ended up with a big number. No, no, no. A, a large part of that smart card stuff is, by the way, is that it... Um, um, the guy I most admire is the guy who dressed up as a wizard, okay, cut out the smart component of his oyster card and stuck it on the end of his wand. And when he went, <laughs> when he went to a ticket gate, he would merely tap, tap the little panel, the gates would open, and he'd walk through with a wonderful sort of wizardy um, uh, raise of his hands. Okay. Now, um, a lot of the feeling of that is actually highly psychological. Um, I hate ticket barriers. I'd love to get rid of them because I think they are a technology which is there's a wonderful model of what humans care about. So you, you ask the fact, is there a model that we can use? Well, David Rock, who's a neuroscientist, a Kiwi based in New York, as far as I can remember, has a model which I don't think is complete. And, and Pete and I can refine it quite a lot. But he calls it SCARF. <coughs> and it, it stands for five things that people care about that economists don't understand and don't make any allowance for. And it's status, certainty, autonomy, relatedness, and fairness. So an example of fairness, I had a big row with someone from a rail company when they said, but a four day a week commuter still saves money from buying a season ticket, okay? <clears throat> now, objectively, that might be true, but they don't save very much. And by the way, by the time they're on a business trip for three days, they're ill for a couple of days, they go on holiday. The amount they save is pretty nugatory. But I said, you're missing the fact there they know that they're paying the same as a five-day commuter and they're only traveling for four days and that fact pisses them off the same goes for a car park season ticket okay if, you know if i only travel into work three days a week from seven oaks okay i have to pay for a full fare goddamn ticket every day okay if i travel in peak and i and, and if, I, if i want to park at the freemasons car park next to seven oaks station God knows how you get access to this. I've been on waiting list for 20 years. Everybody just passes their membership to their friends. So, you know, <laughs> you could be in a meeting, literally, the Sicilian Mafia, the Illuminati, and uh, the Freemasons. And item number one on the agenda would be, does anybody know how you get a season ticket at Seven Oaks Car Park number one? 
Because, <laughs> I mean, seriously, it might as well be controlled by the bloody Illuminati or the Bilderberg group. I mean, it's a complete bloody scam. And I keep complaining to them about it, saying this is just a racket, but nobody bloody listens. Anyway, um, that was a stupid one, by the way, which is rail selling off car parks to third parties to run, when, of course, the car parking experience is intertwined with train use. The, you should have the ability to pay a premium to reserve a parking space at a train car park. And nobody's doing that, okay? So, because that's one of the biggest... When I say certainty is the sea of scarf, if I, a car park which might be full is basically useless, okay? So one of my solutions to that is you actually have 20 charity spaces and you can park there for the same price, but £10 goes to charity if you park there. And the idea is those are the car parking spaces which tend to be for the people who are really desperate to park, not for the people who just happen to turn up first. Mm. Okay, so there are tons of solutions I can come up with. I mean, literally, all you've got to do is look at transportation through a uh, um, the lens of the, the the lens of passenger perception. And this is because transport doesn't have a very powerful marketing function. You know, companies like Unilever are dominated by this kind of um, uh, what you might call reductionist, deterministic thinking, where you have a kind of Newtonian model into which everything is made to fit and where the sole goal is some sort of efficiency. OK. And at least in companies like Unilever, they employ enough marketers and they spend enough on marketing communications that they take marketing seriously. Engineers instinctively hate it because it's everything that, you know, um, engineering isn't. You know, it's messy, it's non-linear, there are butterfly effects all over the place. There are also intelligent inefficiencies, you know. Now, the typical engineer has a kind of efficiency mindset, and it's very, very dangerous to have an efficiency mindset in customer services, because what customers care about are actually the things you do that you don't have to do, okay? That's how you get perceptual appreciation is by doing things that aren't strictly necessary, right? I don't get excited by the fact that my hotel room has a Corby trouser press because you just expect that, okay? It's just become a, you know, a staple, okay? I never use the bloody things anyway, don't know what they are, okay? Um, but you do get a bit excited if when your laundry comes back, they've put a sprig of lavender on top of it, okay? Yeah. We sort of understand this in the hotel trade. And what, what we need, actually, is we need the rail industry to employ people from the hospitality industry. That will be a first valuable move. Because it's dominated, it's too male as well, by the way. And I, I'm, not being, I'm not being like, you know, woke here. I'm just saying that um, uh, generally, when you get a lot of males, okay, I'll make one gender generalisation. Women, okay, are much less stupid than men. Okay, I'm not saying they're more intelligent, right? But men will compete and obsess about a very narrow range of metrics just for the sake of trying to improve things. That's why, you know, you know train spotting, what is that, 99% male fare? Uh, probably, yeah. It's not, it's not very gender diverse, train spotting. We ought, to, we ought to campaign for this, shouldn't we? Gender diversity and train spotting. It's <laughs> a really interesting campaign. But men are much more likely to obsess over things that aren't really important for the, for the sake of it than women are. And so, you know, one of the things about rail is it tends to be, uh, and airlines are interesting too, because I think uh, here's another one in airline pricing. Now, back in my childhood, I'm fairly sure that on a plane, a child under 12 traveled at half price. That disappeared, okay? You're free up until the age of two, and then you're full price. So a lot of people get in a lot of holidays when, they're, when their children are 18 months old, because it's your last chance, you know. Yeah. Okay. Now, here's an interesting thing, right? Why do they always use the price mechanism um, 
in a pure and simple, we will reduce the price of a seat when the flight is not full. Because one of the things I've said to hotel clients and I've said to airline clients is, look, guys, right, a family of four, when they travel on your airline, are paying for four tickets out of one salary if the kids are young, okay? A family, a, a childless couple of two are paying for two tickets out of two salaries, right? So they're likely to be much, much less price sensitive than the family of four. Why don't you on British Airways underbooked routes, instead of dropping the price for everybody, including business travelers and double income couples who aren't that price sensitive, why don't you do a kids go half price flight and fill the flight where you know it's the offer that's driven the takeout? Whereas in other cases, you're just discounting to people who probably would have paid full price. So and in hotels, right? If you think about it, a family of five staying at a travel lodge, for them, it's more expensive than a dual income couple staying at the Savoy because they're paying for three rooms out of one salary, whereas the dual income couple are paying for one room out of two salaries. As uh, as someone with uh, effectively a one income household and two kids, I very much speak to this. And I've been saying this. And the bizarre thing is, if you think about it, rail has spotted this because it spotted the rail card. OK, it invented the rail card because it realized that you could never compete against the car if you charged for four separate tickets. And so the rail card and the family rail card and the youth rail card are all clever forms of price discrimination. But the airline industry does none of this. And this is what we call lateral category analysis. If you look at a category like transport, you'll find ideas that even though these are adjacent categories, they never make it from one to the other. Now, by contrast, OK, what the um, airline industry has spotted is that you don't necessarily reward frequent flyers with lower ticket price, but you do reward them with a better level of service. Now, I think season tickets in the future should be much more about value on than they are about money off. Because one of the things I've said is, why don't you make first class half the train? And first class has tables and working spaces, and it's only for people who buy a first class ticket. Uh, this is in peak hours. It's only for people who buy a first class ticket or are annual season ticket holders, okay? They're the only people. So why don't you give frequent travelers preferential access to seats? Why would you do that? Ergodicity. Let me explain how ergodicity works, okay? Um, if you make five journeys a, a year and have to stand once, five people who have to stand on a train once isn't an overcrowding problem. One person who has to stand on a train five times in a row is a major um, affront to that person's investment in a season ticket. So you should differentially apportion seating. Now, if I fly to Frankfurt 20 times a year on British Airways, right, even if my employer only allows me to sit at the back of the plane, by journey number 20, I'm probably in the BA Silver Club, okay? And suddenly, because I'm in the BA Silver Club, my journey will be that of, with, with the single exception of the seat and the meal, my journey will be that of a business class traveller, because my check-in experience will be a business class terminal, my lounge experience will be that of someone with a club class ticket, my security priority lane experience will be that of someone with a um, a, a club class ticket. Uh, my lounge access, my boarding order, my ability to pre-book a seat, all that stuff becomes effectively business class, okay? Now, off-peak, what you could do is you could simply reframe the half of first class, the train that's half and call it table class, and it's a flat fee of a fiver to use it, okay? You, you know, that could be an app purchase off-peak. But if you think about it, you have this thing, which is the family rail card is something that the trains have spotted, but the airlines haven't. 
And the frequent flyer perks are something that the airlines have spotted, but the trains haven't. Uh, that's what we call lateral category analysis. There's a Russian-Soviet era problem-solving thing called TRIZ, which makes the point that when you have a problem, someone has already solved it somewhere else, and you've never noticed the parallels. And I think there's a lot of that in transport. Now, let's move on to COVID. Do you think there will be any legacy effects from the pandemic in terms of people's behaviour? Um, I think... The first thing is that behavioural science becomes more important now because we don't have past behaviour to rely on as a guide to future behaviour because we've had one massive disruptive event. And just as airlines had to turn off their yield management uh, software when the pandemic hit, because all the software pricing algorithms were based on a world where dropping the price would um, increase demand, would, would generate demand. They suddenly realised they're in a world where that no longer applied. The only people flying were the people who had no choice but to fly. So dropping the prices for those people was kind of insanity. And what about the behaviour of individuals? You mentioned earlier this interesting idea that most transport or most travel is performative. People do it because they need to be seen to be somewhere, not because they actually need to get there. Um, are people going to go back to working unnecessarily in the town, going to meetings that they don't need to be at? Uh, or have we seen a real change in habit and social norm as a result of the pandemic? There, there is, I think, a very obvious demographic thing. Younger people tend to live more centrally, okay? They tend to live, because they live more centrally and because they're younger and because they earn less, they tend to live in much more cramped accommodation, which tends to be shared with other people or maybe shared with young and therefore non-biddable children, okay? Now, I did work with my children at home during lockdown, but they're both 19. So, you know, generally at 19, they don't suddenly do a poo in the middle of my Zoom call. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, on the other hand, if you know, if, if you are, if you're dealing with young children or infants, it, it's a completely different thing. And so the office still has um, a value. It could be a cafe, it could be a third place, remember. Um, but undoubtedly, um, I think there's an age barrier. Young, uh, older people tend to, A, get more tired. They have a longer commute. They have bigger, nicer homes. Uh, with enormous squidgy chairs, um, uh, you know, they save more from their, you know, from not commuting, of course, if they live further out. There are a lot of reasons why this is going to be quite asymmetric. One of the things I'm doing going forward from April or May or June onwards is I'm, I'm definitely putting Wednesday in as a day I go into London. That will be absolutely fixed. Now, the other thing we have to perfect because of this is the hybrid meeting where we've had no practice, which is where three people or five people are co-located in a room, but three people are somewhere else. I have found those a nightmare when I've tried to do them in the past. Uh, there's a technology, there are a couple of technologies. There's a Norwegian one called, I think, Huddle, and there's um, a thing called the Meeting Owl, which is an absolutely sensational technology, which NASA has bought in great quantities, which is a, an owl-shaped thing that sits in the middle of your table um, acts exactly like a webcam, but it's got a lot of AI on board, which means that it automatically zooms in on whoever's doing the talking. And it will even create a sort of split screen triptych. If three people are talking, it will actually split the screen and show all three of the people uh, simultaneously side by side, even if they're sitting at 120 degrees to each other. And that's called the Meeting Owl by Owl Labs. And it's, I think, an absolutely critical. I got WPP to buy about eight of the things. And um, it's an absolutely critical technology because the hybrid meeting will be, to some extent, more of the new normal uh, than either the pure Zoom meeting. Not least because in the short term, 
offices aren't very well equipped for Zoom meetings because this open plan idiocy, you see, uh, means that, you know, uh, you know, uh, th that you're disturbing other people or you've got no privacy or you're just very, very noisy or you can't hear. And so, uh, you know, the hybrid meeting, I think, uh, will be quite normal for quite some time. Now, let me come back to something you said earlier about how transport economic economists make the wrong decisions. And as I want to pick up on something specific you said, because you mentioned um, tables. Um, and there was a two billion pound investment a number of years ago, not, not long ago at all, in new trains for the Thameslink line. Don't get me started. Brighton... Now, now, uh, there, there was one big psychological improvement, which is the old Thameslink trains. This is really interesting. I hated them. And I couldn't work out why. Now, A, it had three abreast seating, which we really, really hate. OK, because it's rather like you should never buy a three man sofa because the person in the, unless you want to sprawl on it yourself like a Roman emperor. OK, the problem with a three person sofa is the person in the middle is effectively, you know, um, disadvantaged. They can't lean. They, yeah, they've got nowhere to put their cup of tea. But the three, the three abreast seating was awful. The awful thing with those old Thameslink trains as well was that the window was designed so that it was absurdly high up relative to your body, or perhaps the seating was far too low. So when you sat on an old Thameslink train, your chin was about level with the bottom of the window. Now, the reason we don't like it is it's infantilizing. It basically feels like a reduction in status. Whereas if you sit high up, relative to the window. It's why people buy four by fours, right? They like the feeling of being high up. Don't talk about going off road, okay? Nobody does that, not in the car they own. They might do it in a borrowed or rented four by four, but not many people do that hardcore off-roading in their Range Rover, trust me, okay? They like the feeling of being elevated, okay? And, and so Thameslink, the old trains were a bloody rolling stock disaster because of that horrible window and seating configuration. A table, a table is a status-enhancing device, by the way, on its own. Okay, even even if it, even if you're not using the table, it protects your genitals from random attack, so it makes you feel more comfortable. Um, okay, I'm not totally making this up, honestly. That's why desks have what's called a privacy screen or something, modesty screen. If you ever buy desks, the modesty screen is an optional extra, which is just a piece of board that goes down the front of the desk, so that your groin doesn't feel exposed. Um, uh, but in the same way, um, understanding these psychological factors that contribute to enjoyment is really vital. Now, I'm just talking about things that are comparatively trivial. But the Thameslink trains, the new Thameslink trains, what was it, 60 million in rolling stock, 120 million? Two, two billion, two, two, 2,000. So, I, I, meant per, I meant per train. Sorry, yes, you're right. Oh, it, sorry, it, yeah. It, it, it'll be about, about 12 million, I'm going to guess. Okay, so 12, 12 million per train. Now, okay, uh, the fact that, you know, um, you you spend twelve million on a train, but you skimp on you either skimp on the seatback tables, or you use this utterly spurious argument that tables um, damage punctuality because they reduce the speed of ingress and egress by like three seconds. Okay, and I said, if that's a problem, just make the goddamn announcements ten seconds earlier, right? Okay, I mean, I mean genuinely. Uh, to, let me tell you a story about transport people and how they're mad, okay? I made this case that I could achieve 20 to 30% of the benefits of high-speed two uh, in a way that would take six months to implement and uh, would cost about £2 million, pounds, okay? And my argument was, look, if you define journey time as end-to-end -end journey time, you don't define it as time on the train, 
And it's very important that you do, by the way, because time spent waiting for a train, dicking around at Euston Station, is much less productive and much more annoyable than actually sitting on a train. I always get annoyed at Euston when they always do preparing train, like it's a fucking souffle, <laughs> right? Okay, because I go, no, I don't care if you're hoovering on the goddamn thing, just let me sit on it, okay? Once I'm sitting on the train, I'm happy. I open my laptop, I plug in my mobile phone. You know, I'm like a pig in shit once I'm sitting on the train, okay? But my problem is that every time I went up to Manchester, which I did about five times a year, you bought a, an advance first. You couldn't afford to miss that train because um, uh, if you did, your ticket would be totally invalid and you'd have to buy a full fare ticket, therefore getting into trouble and, and ending up with a non-claimable business expense. So you allowed a margin of error of about 45 minutes. And you arrived at Euston from Kent, as I did, 45 minutes early. In that 45 minutes when I was standing around like a moron, okay, um, two trains left for Manchester 20 and 40 minutes before my own. Now, all you need is an app which just says, look, I'm at Euston now. And the app says, pay us a fiver and you can have seat J8 on the train leaving in five minutes or pay us three quid. I'm making up these figures. OK, and you can leave 20 minutes early and have seat H14. OK, right. And I would then save 40 minutes of journey time. I would also massively improve the capacity of the network. Because if you want to improve network capacity, you always allow people to leave early when there's when there's vacant seating. OK, if you look at it, I mean, it's not totally obvious why that's so. But if you look at the evacuation of the U.S. Embassy compound of Saigon, one of the things you'll notice is they filled up every helicopter, didn't they? They didn't say, I'm terribly sorry you're booked on the 2 p.m. departure, so you'll have to wait on the roof for an hour <laughs> and a half and leave with a helicopter with three people on it, right? Okay? They filled every helicopter. In the same way, it is good. A large part of the overcrowding on that West Coast line is a product not of excess demand. It's a product of the pricing regime, where the trains that are consistently most overcrowded are the first off-peak train of the day, Okay? So you could very largely increase capacity and reduce overcrowding by, first of all, getting rid of the hard barrier between off-peak and peak. And secondly, implementing my solution, where you're always allowed to travel on an earlier train where capacity allows, because it then frees up vacant capacity on later trains and it, it manages the load balancing. OK, now, no one. No one has ever disagreed with me on my basic argument that this would cost two million pounds. It would achieve maybe 20 percent of the benefits of high speed, two, And it might even make high speed, two partly unnecessary. Now, a few other things I think are really important, which transport economics doesn't understand. I mean, one of the great flaws of economics always strikes me the idea that utility is considered to be an additive function. OK, now it's fairly obvious that utility is multiplicative. OK, three big disasters in a row are worse than three disasters spaced out. OK, but there, there's, there's a multiplicative dimension to it. And this comes into an interesting field which criticizes the whole field of economics, not from my standpoint, which is the criticism that economics is blind to psychology and it's blind to complexity. And it's, it, you know, it assumes a level of linearity that simply isn't replicated in the real world. That's my criticism. This bunch of physicists, Ole Peters, people like Alex Adamiu at the London Mathematical um, Laboratories, uh, criticise it from the point of view of ergodicity. Now, ergodicity, I'm going to just just bear with me. I'm sorry about this. My PA goes nuts because every time we have a conference, I just go, we need to have two hours on ergodicity. And she puts her <laughs> head in her hands. OK, but it's really, really important. And it's dead serious maths. Right. The original paper 
criticizing economics for this was co-authored between Ole Peters and Murray Gelman, who's a Nobel Prize winning physicist. Okay, so this is serious mathematical shit, right? This isn't a bunch of psychologists going, ooh, your models aren't very good. Okay, this is just saying, look, not only not only are you wrong to be over-reliant on very narrow maths, but you've even got the maths wrong to begin with. Now, let me explain this, okay? Um, ergodicity uh, effectively applies only when the ensemble outcome is the same as the time series outcome. OK, so something is non-ergodic where I made a joke. OK, it's not that funny a joke, but as intellectual jokes go, I have to say it's pretty good, which is they had a conference on ergodicity and it was um, a, a thousand pounds for one person to attend for five days. And I said, can I send five people to attend for one day? Because presumably that's exactly the same. <laughs> OK, now, obviously, the joke is that learning is non-ergodic. OK, one person learning for five days is not the same as five people learning for one day. Okay. Yep. Got it so far. Yep. Okay. My, my, my brilliant friend, Luca Delana, who you ought to invite on the podcast, a brilliant guy, says that cake making is not ergodic because if you get 10 people to make their first cake, they'll make 10 shit cakes. If you get one person to make 10 cakes, their ninth cake actually might be pretty decent. Okay. So now yep. my, answer, my argument is that all transport models assume ergodicity and it's simply wrong because um, if you look at high speed two, okay, it saves a certain amount of time in aggregate. But most people, now I'm, I'm, willing to, I'm willing to accept that this might change, but most people don't travel to Manchester between Manchester and London or, Manchester, or London and Birmingham twice a week, okay? It's a journey you make five times a year. Saving 100 people two hours once a year is not the same as saving a one person two hours 100 times a year. So you would say we, we, we transport people think of HS1 as the high speed link to the Channel Tunnel. Um, you'd say it's the high speed link to Margate and Folkestone. That also happens to serve Paris. It was also it, was also, it the wrong way around. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That the principal value of it is probably as a domestic rail network. The great thing about Kent, by the way, if you ever move out, is it's got fantastic rail redundancy. And this is another feature I look at, which is that efficiency optimization always imagines a perfect utopian universe and then seeks to optimize the best. And when I when my brother moved out of London, I'd moved out of London quite a few years earlier because I had kids earlier. Uh, he said, do you have any advice on commuting? And I said, the first thing is, don't ask the question, how long does it take to, to get to London? From where, from where you're thinking of buying a house. Ask the question, what's the second best way of go, getting into London if the first way doesn't work? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. And the great thing about Kent, because there was competition to reach the channel ports, it's got insane rail redundancy. So in Deal, for example, you can get to London in both directions. From Ashford, you can go into Victoria, you can go into Charing Cross, you can go into St Pancras, okay? It's got utterly glorious, um, um, you know, superfluity of... of routes which means that basically you know um, uh, all these people you know I, I look at all these sad bastards who are dependent on that line that goes down to brighton right if a lorry hits the bridge there they're basically stranded they might as well live on the outer hebrides when that happens whereas in kent if you've got a little bit of you know um uh, you know mental uh, uh you know cunning you can always work out a plan b and coming back to your transport models criticism, is superfluity built into transport models? I'm not sure that it no, is. No, 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 it isn't. In Kent, it arose through competition. One of the things I argue is that one of the unsung benefits of capitalism is capitalism isn't very efficient, right? There's a huge amount of duplication in capitalism, but competition actually 
creates free market competition actually creates accidental resilience. OK, because actually, if you look at, you know, OK, food delivery to the home from grocery companies, right? None of them did that because it was efficient. It's a terribly inefficient way of delivering food. Mao or Stalin would never have come up with food delivery, right? OK, you'd have the great grocery hall of the people, number 1072, where everybody would buy their <laughs> stuff centrally. OK, now the trouble is, if the great grocery hall of the people has some sort of supply chain problem, everybody starves to death. Now, the great thing with competitive capitalism, if you have a reasonable biodiversity, is the reason all these companies introduced home delivery was that they realized that if they didn't, they'd lose a lot of custom to people who did. Now, if you had central planning, you just have one rail line going, you know, going to deal or something, right? But it's the overlay of three competing rail networks, which actually provides, because to the, to the commuter, low variance is much more important than optimal perfection. OK, because the question you've got to ask as a commuter is not is not only how long does it take me under. Everybody tells tells you total bollocks about that. Have you ever heard that? You know, oh, you know, I get I, I get I get into work, you know, 60 minutes door to door. Well, that happened once in their life. <laughs> complete porcupines about this. But the question you need to ask is what's the second best way of getting in? Because yeah. the first way is going to go wrong and you need a plan B. So sure enough, my brother's in Burnham. It's on the crossrail line, but he can scoot up to is it High Wickham? He can get on the, he can get on the right. Chilton line. Yeah. Okay. That's right. And then the other great psychological thing, of course, is well, this is why I said that rail information led to the growth of rail travel use is people people care more about certainty than they do about punctuality. One of the most important things rail companies started doing is that when a train ground to a halt, they got the driver or the guard to make an announcement. Because the Uber map is a brilliant piece of psychological um, technology. Because we don't necessarily mind whether a cab takes eight minutes or 15. What we can't stand is the feeling of uncertainty when we've booked a cab and we have no idea where it is. And so that's an example of creating hedonic value without changing the objective universe at all. And because transport is obsessed with objective metrics rather than subjective metrics, it essentially builds um, service around the mindset of the network operator not the mindset of the passenger give me an edwardian armchair and a full english breakfast and you can make my commute to london as slow as you like <laughs> so given this do you think it's possible to come up with a, a set of transport decision making tools models guidance that you know, isn't simply saying we only care about journey time and we only care about punctuality and actually yeah, is based around the things that people do care about. Is that possible? Is that a, is, could that happen? Yes. Yeah. And the first thing I think you need to do is you need to experiment, because as I said, market research can't tell you this because people tend to say, "I want my train to be punctual." They don't have the degree of introspection to say, "I hate it when I'm uncertain about the arrival time of my train." So the best thing London Underground did to improve passenger satisfaction per pound spent wasn't faster, more frequent, longer, more capacious trains. It was dot matrix displays because we'd rather wait eight minutes for a train knowing it's coming in eight minutes than wait four minutes for a train not knowing when it's going to arrive. OK, and yet they have a horrible time making the business case for it, because the only way you can justify investment in transport for London is in something that it changes the objective experience, not the subjective experience. And so they have to create all sorts of kind of you know contrived bullshit to invest in passenger information, despite the fact that I would argue it's passenger information that has largely contributed to the uptake in um, use of public transit. 
Now, I've kept you talking far longer than I intended, so we need to wrap up. But before we do, just tell me, what's the one takeout that you would like a listener of freewheeling to take from this conversation? Uh, we don't do things according to what they let us do. We do things according to how they make us feel. Fantastic. That's perfect. Thank you very much for joining us on a freewheeling podcast. It's been a huge pleasure. Really, thoroughly enjoyed it. Well, that concludes the freewheeling podcast for this week. With huge thanks to my guest, Rory Sutherland, and to you for listening. If you get two minutes, please do give us a rate and review. And you can find me on the various social channels at Thomas Abelman. I look forward to being with you again for the next edition of the Freewheeling Podcast. Goodbye.